Hello, everybody. Hi. And what is going on in your corner of the world, I wonder? Uh, well, I got the first half of my tattoo. You did, and it's lovely. Very exciting. Yeah, it's just chilling out on my arm right now. Mm-hmm. Um, was really funny. Um, and it, if it's funny, it's not funny. Um, I got home and I realized, uh, looking at the line art, that part of it's done wrong. So like the dimensions don't make like any sense. Um, one of the inner spheres, the way that uh, he drew it, because he wasn't paying attention to what I drew. He just redrew it to make it bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not like a ring anymore. It's like a a Mobius strip instead because of the way that it connects. Oh no. And the second I got home and I saw that, I'm like, oh no, it's (laughs) not a ring. And then I'm like, oh, I've got to like make up a weird headcanon about the biblical angel on my arm now. Yeah. About how one of the rings is like a Mobius strip so that I Uh stop having this fucking panic attack. Otherwise you will fixate on it forever. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I created a mythology for my tattoo about why it is the way that it is so that I could stop freaking the fuck out. Good um, job. <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty dope and I can't wait to um, get some color on it. Yeah, it looks awesome. Um, for those who don't know, it is a tattoo of a biblical angel. Um, and uh, I feel like we've talked about what they look like in the bible before like maybe when we did our bible episodes we talked about it we probably talked about it at some point um i love biblical angels and this is um a little bit of a mix of an ophanim and a seraphim um but they're just so fascinating and how yeah. weird they are mm-hmm. it's like concentric rings and like a million eyes and it's just like Oh, that's why whenever they appear to people, the first thing they say is be not be afraid. Be not afraid. Because <laughs> people would be like, whoa, what is that? <laughs> Someone in the process of shitting themselves. <laughs> Wait, never mind. Whoa. <laughs> Could you have said that a little oh, bit sooner? Right. It it so reminds me of um, did you ever see any of my Halloween costumes when I was on campus when I used to like put on like the demon horns and like paint my face like a skull and shit? No, I don't think I ever saw you. I was probably drunk. (laughs) That's fine. Um, But I would dress like that in like the Reaper's gown with like a scythe and stuff. And I would go to classes that way um, for Halloween. But (laughs) I found this out the hard way the first time. And then I had to do like the whole angel thing after that is Mm -hmm. I went to the bathroom and got out of the bathroom (laughs) Did not realize that the person in the stall next to me would not be prepared to mm. see my face mm. until they opened their <laughs> stall door and almost shit themselves. And yeah. Like, the horned Grim Reapers standing yeah. up washing their hands. No, that's very frightening. So like after that, every Halloween, like walking into a bathroom, I had to be like, I'm in full makeup. Don't be scared when mm-hmm. you come out of the stall. Be not afraid. <laughs> It is not really the angel of death. <laughs> it is only me. <laughs> you slide your business card under the <laughs> resident weirdo trying to get extra credit in her classes. Yeah. I never got offered any extra credit for dressing up. I would have. 
I only would in like one class, but mm-hmm. like they were all that day. So I would just have to show up to all of my classes as the weirdo Grim Reaper mm-hmm. in the back of the room. Yeah. Um, it was interesting in some intro classes uh, because we've talked about like masking and everything. And so I would, you know, be masked up as like the quiet intellectual person mm-hmm. who doesn't say much and doesn't like get into any trouble. Yeah. And then just imagine Halloween week, everyone else being totally normal and me sitting there <laughs> like a demon standing out as much as fucking possible. Old demon makeup. Oh my God. That's so funny. It was really hard to fade back into the background after Halloween. I was so glad that there were not that many weeks of like school. Right. Because then it's just like Thanksgiving break, Christmas mm. break. Then you're gone. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. Never see you again. This is Saints and Witches, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I am Sarah. I'm Liz. She's a witch. And Sarah's a Catholic. And today we're going to talk about saints and witches, I think. Yes, we are. Kind of. Mine's witchcraft adjacent. I finally am back to just like a straightforward story about a saint. Cool. I am not here to do that today. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm excited to hear about your saint. We're in India. Yes. Yes. India. Very excited. First time in India. Yes, and India does listen to the podcast. Thank you, India, and hello. Yes, hello. (laughs) Nothing we say is factually incorrect. Uh, Beans. I know I'm going to say a couple (laughs) things that are a little uh, funky, so can't wait. I can't wait either. Okay, let's do it. Okay. So uh, today I threw us into India um, Mm -hmm. simply because I pulled up a map of the world and tried to find some region we had not been to yet. Um, And India stuck out to me. I know that you're like, oh, there's like 200 blah, blah, blah countries. It's like, "Mm, yeah, but India is pretty big. So it stuck out like a sore thumb. It's a big one. And we haven't been there yet. Right. Um. India seemed like it could be interesting based on my preliminary research. Um, There are a lot of things in India that I could talk about, so we could easily come back here in the future. Um, I could go into the folklore, mythology, religion. Um, I could talk about recent witch hunts, um, which I don't want to do right now because (laughs) fresh off of a lot of downers. Right. Um, Yeah. It was a little bit of a bummer, but it was still interesting. Very interesting, but I want to do something a little bit different right now. Um, I could talk about the quote unquote rise of witchcraft in India, um, and these articles that are very similar to ones that we also have, um, in America that highlight the growing number of like modern witches. Um, and when you see interest in the occult peak, um, people are very interested in like how many people are moving away from like Christianity or blah, blah, blah to like witchcraft. It's like, yeah, gives a fuck. Yeah. Um, but yeah, India also has articles like that and they were interesting, um, just because like, obviously their culture is very different from our culture. So the way that we talk about it in our articles is very different than the way they talk about it in their articles. Cool. Um, all of it was interesting that I decided instead to focus on some cases of reincarnation in India as documented by a man named Ian Stevenson. Okay. 
Um, Ian Stevenson, who died back in 2007, was born in 1918 in Montreal, Canada. He was one of three children and the son of a lawyer, um, and his mom had this extensive library on theosophy. Um, so he had access to all of these books and her interests became his interests. Um, because he was plagued with bronchitis as a kid, he was confined to bed a lot and he did become an avid reader as a result. Um, I think he was quoted as having read at some point over like 3,500 books, which I'm like, what? that's not a lot. And then I look at my Goodreads and it's like, you've read like 200 books in your lifetime. It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a lot until I go look at like the list of my books, which I know is higher than 200 now, but still, well, I have still, not broken a thousand. Yeah. No and way. he must have been a speed reader because like, I can't even fathom reading that many books like I but I'm a pretty slow reader yeah. so it seems like so few but it is so many yeah um, it's really sad that we have like a finite number of books that we get to read in our lifetime Ugh, don't make me cry choose wisely Ugh. I just I read a bunch of garbage and filth and trash it <laughs> 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 just write like the most like obscene reviews Yes, I do. And like, this is the worst thing I've ever read that I picked up voluntarily. No one put a gun to my head and I did it anyway. Right. I thought about stopping a hundred times, but I yep. just kept on going. I could have read so... this other book with a bunch of five-star reviews, but I chose this one. Yep. I don't value my time. It's so fun to read bad books sometimes, though. <sighs> they are inspiring. Um, they like really reading... are. Reading good books and watching really good movies do not make me want to create my own stuff. Watching no. really bad stuff and reading bad stuff makes me want to. 100%. Because if you see something good, you're like, why even try? Like, I'll never be yes, that I, good. Yeah, that's way better than anything I could ever do. And then right. you read something that um, is not terrible, but also not great. And it's like, you know, I know all the ways in which like this could be fixed. This is like my speed. <laughs> I can do this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah um anyway uh so he's avid reader he um grew up to become a doctor and a professor he studied medicine at St. Anthony's in Scotland until until World War II broke out um and he had to come home and finish his studies in Canada um he went on to complete a bachelor of science and uh an MD and did residency and fellowships in the United States which um it's kind of funny it says that uh he came down here to like Arizona and stuff specifically because of like his bronchitis and things. And it just reminded me of like Victorian novels where they're like, just take her to the seaside just, because of her fever. Right. She needs to take the, the warm air. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, you should go down to Arizona. The climate will be much better for your bronchitis. <laughs> right. and I'm just like, like, what age are we? <laughs> right. I always pretend that that's why I'm at the beach whenever I go to the beach I got to get away from the asbestos line right. house <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just, you Ill. right and just like be in the in the in the open breeze and like hope that it cures my terminal illness your scarlet fever yes <laughs> my tuberculosis <laughs> 
a consumption. Maybe, maybe that'll get me to go outside more if I just pretend that I have a ye old illness. Yes. I need, I need to get some sunshine. Yes, I bet it would. That's a good one. I'm going to use that. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of my grandpa right now, though, that he messaged me out of the blue. He's like, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, you know, I've had allergies, blah, 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 but I'm doing better. He's like, got to make sure you go outside and get that sunshine and fresh air. It's really good for you. <laughs> By the way, doctors told me I only have 32% kidney function. <laughs> he just slipped it into the conversation. He's like, go outside for me. It's really nice. It's like, what the fuck grandpa have you seen that that tiktok guy casual carl (laughs) no oh my god it's the same thing it's like hey (laughs) it's like he leaves um voicemails for his kids and grandkids it's a character but he he's like hey just wanted to call and see how you're doing like blah 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 blah. a bunch of like like 20 like meaningless things and then like oh and uh just to let you know we are on the way to the hospital uh, doctor said your mom's got a brain tumor so we're just getting that checked out it doesn't look good but I'll keep you updated okay bye <laughs> that's my family yeah to a T yeah there's like I know we haven't talked in a while blah 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 like your little nephew went to his first t-ball game yep. and it's all great and by the way your cousin got hit by a car and he died anyway <laughs> See you in a couple okay. more. Okay, have a good rest of your day. Yeah. <laughs> I never know what I'm going to get when I initiate a conversation with someone in my family. But yeah, the sunshine and fresh air immediately reminded mm. me of him and his 32% functioning kidneys. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> we are definitely prone to like getting very off topic today, I think. Uh, it, yeah, I'm just heads up that... <laughs> We're rambling today, um, yeah. but, you know, if you don't mind wandering with us a little bit. <laughs> Walking with us on our journey. And when you look down and there's only one set of footprints, it's because <laughs> we ditched you. <laughs> also, you do have the handy little feature where you can just skip forward overall. <laughs> True. True. People try to act like they like have no control over the content that they consume. It's so funny. No, you have like the skip forward 30 second button. Like yeah. just utilize that today. <laughs> Go ahead and make use of that button. If you're not familiar <laughs> with that button, try it out now. <laughs> this has been an ad for the skip button. Anyway. Um, residencies in the States, fellowships, blah, blah, blah. Um, Ian Stevenson, his interests began to drift from biochemistry as it was being studied. Um, over time in the 1950s, he actually meets Aldous Huxley, which I wrote down because the little tie in to things that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, he both tries LSD and researches it. Um, and mm. is one of kind of like the first researchers to do that. So jealous. Um, yeah and he uh, I forget how it was phrased exactly something about those three days being like the happiest of his life or something I fucking bet he was out of his goddamn mind (laughs) and he's like you know what like obviously I'm never gonna attain it again but just pin it in the back of my mind for like hope yeah (laughs) yeah okay oh that's nice 
I would like to do hallucinatory drugs, but I'm also very afraid it would break my brain permanently and I would never go back to who I was before. Just don't do acid, do shrooms, and just do a tiny amount. Uh, it's on the list of things to do before I die. Yeah, we're gonna, um, we're gonna make it happen. Just, yep, make me hallucinate some wild shit, Sarah. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> like I have access to shrooms right now. <laughs> well, we're getting like more liberal and progressive as a society and we're like legalizing weed and things so maybe we'll loosen up on some other shit before we die i hope i fucking hope so even if it's when i'm like 80 yeah I i'd be like hell yeah get high on shrooms in in the, the nursing, nursing home. home yep have my my niece smuggle in some shrooms for me yeah, yep. the nurses will not know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> no. I'm on their toes. <laughs> right. I wake up in jail. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, Stevenson writes an article called The Evidence for Survival from Claimed Memories of Former Incan- Incarnations in 1960. Uh, which got the attention of the founder of the Parapsychology Foundation, who gave him a grant to travel India and research past life cases, um, which is cool. Mm-hmm. In 1951, he was named the head of psychi- head of the psychiatry department at the University of Virginia, a post he maintained until, as I understand it, the inventor of the Xerox machine, Chester Carlson, died. Um, Carlson, whose wife stevenson thought had esp like impressed upon her husband like how important stevenson's work was Hmm. um so when he like died and i think he made regular donations before this but when he died he donated a million dollars to the university of virginia for the continuation of stevenson's work whoa yeah, which allowed Stevenson to step down as chair, um, and he became a Carlson Professor of Psychiatry and found um, a division of his program called the Division of Personal Studies, which was later renamed the Division of Perceptual Studies, um, and it's an academic group in the field of supernatural phenomena that's noted as being unusual because it's comprised of like board-certified physicians and scientists at a respected university, which apparently is not very common yeah that's cool but yeah the last thing I expected when I was researching this is like the founder the creator of the um the Xerox machine to randomly show up yeah it's the same energy as the Gretchen Wieners's dad (laughs) the inventor of toaster strudel yes (laughs) um my father is the inventor of the xerox machine i didn't know a goddamn thing about the xerox machine Mm. at all but now i know that the person who made its wife was convinced she had esp because Uh of this man and so they donated a lot of money to him Mm. i wonder if they were having an affair i don't know Mm. so juicy interesting to think about yeah Um, Stevenson is best known for his research into reincarnation. He traveled extensively to Asia, Europe, and the U.S. finding cases where children claim knowledge of a previous life. Um, He approached the topic like as scientifically as possible. A lot of people will comment reincarnation from like a spiritual lens. I read his work, uh, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation for Today, um, and he does outline what he does in order to verify cases. 
um, how he documents by hand rather than by a recorder, um, how he uses multiple translators to cut down on translation errors, how long he interviews people, who he interviews, what they say, if there's any other way these children could have gotten their hands on some of this information, and so on and so on. Um, and he's relatively forthcoming about when he can't be 100% certain about something and some of the weaknesses of his methods. Um, like, for example, um, whenever he talks about uh, like documenting by hand rather than by a recorder, when I heard that first, I was like, well, that leaves a lot of room for like getting things incorrect. And he's like, yeah, and I understand that. And he's like, so I submitted my notes to somebody who also recorded a session and had them like compare them side by side. Um, and they pretty much said that there are cases where I missed information because I was busy like writing things down, mm -hmm. but in only like one case did I ever get a detail incorrect. I got mm. somebody's age wrong. So he's like, there's information I may have missed, which is why there's other people there. But at no point did I ever like make something up and write it down. Okay. Um, so he kind of goes into like the way in which he does things. Um, and he has his critics, um, plenty of them who will go, you know, on and on about confirmation bias and leading mm. questions and faulty research methods. Um, but several of those critics will still tip their hats to him for being upfront about where his cases and methods are weak and where they can be pried open. Um, saying that it would have been like very easy for him to suppress anything that uh, would make it easy for a critic to pull apart his work. Um, but it's admirable um, that he would give his enemies like all of the ammunition that they need. So he might be like, oh, you know, like right here, here's this detail that uh, can completely undermine like my entire case or whatever. Yeah. I'm choosing to interpret it this way because of these subsequent facts. Um, but if you want to pick it apart, like here is all of the like ammo you need. Yeah. Um, so I believe in reincarnation, but I'm also immensely skeptical of it. Um, most cases I come across, I don't necessarily believe in it takes a lot for me to believe in a case of reincarnation it's um hard for me to believe in the cases that he's talking about just because you're only getting like one person's word on this case yeah if you had this person's case being um talked about by five six seven eight different scientists maybe and also um people who come from the spiritual side of things maybe then i would start to um definitely buy into it but I think that's been my main problem um, believing some of these stories too, is that, yeah, it's all from one source when you hear the story. So, and the person who is the source, like obviously wants it to be true mm -hmm. and wants you to believe them for whatever reason, whether it's their own fame, their own, like the research grant, like, so yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't heard one where I've like thought without a shadow of a doubt that it was true. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I definitely doubt um, pretty much all of them that I come across to some degree. Mm -hmm. I doubt my own memories um, <laughs> heavily. Yeah. Like, 
whenever I say like, oh, I've been reincarnated, it doesn't mean like, oh, I had like all of these random memories and I just decided that they were real and that I totally didn't make them up. It's like, now I've probably devoted like an immense amount of research to looking up the area and the time mm. and seeing how it connects and blah, blah, blah. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? That detail doesn't make sense. It's mm-hmm. probably made that one up. That one probably came from this TV show. That one's probably from here. Right. Um, and so there are a lot of like, quote unquote, lives that I feel like I have that I definitely, you know, don't really think happened necessarily. Mm. Um, I think that I probably got them maybe when I was little from like a TV show or something and just my imagination ran off with it and because it's been in my head for so long. I think that's the problem with being a spiritual person and also being someone with a really active imagination is that you are constantly wondering like, is this real or am I just like really good at imagining (laughs) things? And Mm -hmm. so you doubt yourself and your intuition, which is tough. Yeah, it is tough. Um, But I would rather be like supremely skeptical of myself than to like buy into everything that my brain comes up with um yeah it's 100 percent fact yeah I think that's how you get like 80 people saying that they were all John Lennon (laughs) yeah yep (laughs) and I knew one of them in college oh no yep she swore up and down (laughs) we can't all be John Lennon (laughs) we can't all be John Lennon (laughs) It's my turn to be John Lennon. <laughs> Mom said I get to be John Lennon. <laughs> it's my turn. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, yes. Um, in this book that I read, 20 Cases, Stevenson details seven cases he researched in India. At this time, he researches for years, writes hundreds of articles. He think he writes 14 books. Um, And he publishes a manuscript that's over 2,000 pages in length. I think it's over 2,200 pages in length. That is Um, twice the length of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. um, about And it's not about all of his cases. It's only about the importance of and connections between birthmarks and reincarnation. So What? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Long ass book. Very, very long. Um, So these seven cases are not the only Indian cases. They're just the only ones in this early work. Um, And I'm also not going to be talking about all of them um, just for sake of time. Um, If you'd like to read about these cases, Stevenson's works are available online in PDF form if you know where to look. If you do not know where to look, you are more than welcome to contact us and we can always let you know where we find our source material. I was thinking about making a reading list. But yeah. I also don't want to. <laughs> I, as a former instructor at a university, I always want to do something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm, no, this is what some people do, like to listen in their cars when they go to work. This yeah. is not a job for them. Um, right. They they don't want a semester's worth of like reading assignments. It would be a pretty cool independent study. It would be a cool independent study. Um, but yeah, so yeah, just to throw that out there, if you ever want access to any of the sources that we've used or want to know where they came from, like, just let us know. We can get you that stuff. Yeah. Um, because we're still kind of affiliated with the university. Um, one, we can still get into certain databases. Mm-hmm. I know because my university email still works. Yeah. Um, and two, we're just really fucking crafty about finding shit on the internet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
very true I don't want to pay for anything so yep truly yeah I refuse to except in like dire need like I'll spend 10 bucks if I have to but um I refuse Uh, (laughs) I I I won't pay any money at all unless a work literally is so obscure that I can't find it like anywhere yeah that nobody's uploaded it to any sites that it's not on like google books um that somebody hasn't pasted it into some archive somewhere that is the only time i will resort to ever buying anything and i've only had to do that like twice so yeah um the first case i want to talk about is that of disclosure again i looked up a lot of these names but um not all of like the like hindi pronunciations and things are available so in some cases i will be guessing um, is that of Prakash? He is born in August 1951 to the Barshne family. Um, he cries a lot as a baby and kind of out of nowhere around the age of four and a half. Um, he begins waking up in the middle of the night for about a full month um, and running out of the house. Mm. Um, and when his family kind of stops him and questions, you know, what are you doing? Um, he becomes very insistent that his name is not Prakash, but Nirmal, um, that his father is a man named Bolanath, and that he lives in Kosnikolan, um, which is a village about six miles away. And I did not write this down anywhere because I was a little short on time today. Um, but one thing that Stevenson talks about, um, especially at this point in time, because we're you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s at the time that um, he's putting all of this together, um, is that uh, these villages, while it says that they might only be like a couple miles away from one another, um, I forget the how he phrased it exactly, but more people travel from like San Francisco to New York, like per capita or something, Mm. than these people travel from like village to village. I see. So um, you can't just imagine like, oh, it's six miles away. Maybe throw up in the US, we put it like 124 miles apart. Like it's it's very different because of um, like access, dirt roads. You have the, the caste system where yeah. people are separated. Um, so these villages might be close, um, but they might be very little overlap in people visiting them or people who go to both. So um, it's a village six miles away, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, he desperately wants to go there. He wants to go home, um, bothering his family to the point that um, an uncle on his mother's side, I believe, finally agrees to take him there. Um, but puts Prakash on the wrong bus on purpose. Um, just is essentially just trying to humor this kid, but also doesn't really want to give the kid what he wants because you know what's gonna happen when you give a kid what they want every time that they want something. I mean, <laughs> just this once you could have done it. <laughs> yes. Okay. But yeah, just sending him <laughs> off to this weird village where they don't have any family or anything just because this like a little four and a half year old boy <laughs> wants to go there. Um, I guess. Yeah. I and guess. Like, yeah, no, we're going to put him on a, a different bus. Um, but uh, Prakash, who has never been to Kosnikolan, um, nevertheless recognizes this error that his uncle has made mm. um, and demands to be put on the correct bus. Um, and in Kosnikolan, he visits the shop of a Bolanath Jane who isn't present. 
Norris's family and Prakashpo's home. Um, the Jane family hears of his visit and of his protestations that he is normal. Um, the name of their son, who died in 1950, so a year before Prakash was born, mm. um, from smallpox after declaring on his deathbed that his mother was not his mother and that he wanted to go home. Whoa. So this clearly piques the interest of the Jane family. Um, they don't really do anything about it, but they just, it's like in the back of their head that they know that this is going on. There's this boy over in this other village saying these things. Mm-hmm. Um, Prakash's family in the meantime is very displeased about his insistence that he's this other child and he needs to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they do beat him. Um, to make him shut up about it. Um, and Stevenson says beats, but I don't know if he means hits or beats because they're like a little bit different. Yeah, I would think beating would be with an object. Yeah, or even like he says something, we hit him. It's like he spoke up, we slapped him, he stopped. Or we like spanked him and he quit. But beats is like, I kicked the dog shit out of this right. kid until he shut the fuck up. Right, or like took him outside and like made him pick out a switch. And like, wailed on him. Yeah. Right. Gave him the belt, gave him the paddle. You know <laughs> um, the old one too. This is not <laughs> funny. <laughs> it's, it's not, but... <laughs> I realized halfway through, I was like, oh man, no, not. Mm. Well, as a child who was hit with a switch <laughs> and had a paddle in our house, um, I make light of these things. Uh, so it makes me feel better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, they apply corporal punishment to make him stop. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1961, a few years later, Prakash does have the chance to run into Bolanoff and the man's daughter, I don't know if it's Memo or Mimo. Um, I couldn't find out clearly if you look up Memo, M-E-M-O, you're just going to get all of the like English pronunciations. It's very hard to find the like Hindi pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Um, but he calls Bolanoff father um, and he calls um, the girl sister during his meeting. Um, and they won't take uh, Prakash back with them to Kosnikolan, um, no, no matter how like insistent he is at like this bus stop that like, please take me with you, please take me with you. Just imagine like this little, little boy, just like waist high. It's just like, please take me with you. You're my family. I yeah. want to go home with you. They're like, I don't know what the fuck is going on right now. Oh my God. <laughs> You're making a scene. Be quiet. Right. So awkward. Um, yeah uh but later on um their family the jane family does visit prakash who is still demanding to go home um and prakash is eventually allowed by his own family to go visit the village again so for the second time there it's documented that prakash navigates the village the jane's home without any assistance um he identifies more family um and it's Stevenson makes a point that like no leading questions were asked, but there's no way to completely verify that when you're getting a lot of this secondhand, like years after the fact, like, oh yeah, like this little kid came up to me and he's like, you were my uncle. Um, There's no way that none of them didn't ask any leading questions at all. Right. Yeah. Um, 
So I think it's very hard to, even though it says that that's been verified, I think it's very hard to verify something like that. And especially people who want this to be real are going to deny that they ever asked leading questions. Right. It's like, no, I didn't do anything. He did it all on his own. Yeah, Yeah, he definitely did everything by himself. He knew exactly who I was and my name and everything. There's no other way that he got that information. I think that Mm. um, in some cases it might be accurate. I think in some cases... um, definitely not um but he identifies family he identifies areas of the house that were normals um and at this point it's pretty well accepted that prakash is normal reborn um but his family remains unhappy with prakash's um obsession with this life um and they do continue to beat him to keep him quiet um but apparently this arises out of a fear that the jane family is attempting to take prakash from them and adopt him mm-hmm. and essentially that he's just helped making that happen mm-hmm. um and this fear is um big enough that when stevenson visits um to interview prakash um and the families and travels with one of the jane family members in his party that prakash's family turns against stevenson and refuses to allow prakash to speak to stevenson at least at first because they think that stevenson is on the side of like this family taking their kid from them yeah that makes sense um eventually they do get the chance to talk um and stevenson makes a chart for every case Um, of what the child claimed, who informed him of this claim, and who verified it as a truth. Um, He also adds that if, you know, in the notes, if there's a discrepancy between like, oh, three of the family members said this, but one person did have this like dissenting opinion, Mm -hmm. Um, or if something uh, needs expanded upon he ends each case with what happened to the children. Um, in Prakash's case, he grows up keeping in contact with Nirmal's family. Um, and because of this, his memories um, of his past life remain relatively intact. One thing Stevenson talks about a lot is um, how memories of your past life fade as you start to get older. Um, and um, part of it is because, you know, you're not allowed to talk about it. Part of it is you accept it. Part of it is just getting older. Um, children are always noted as being particularly susceptible to like the paranormal and the yeah. supernatural. Um, they're the ones who can see spirits until they hit a certain age and right. like, kind of taught that like, mm, that's not really a thing. Right. Um, so uh, this is one of the cases in which um, the past life memories um, stick around. And it's because he still has um, so much contact with this family. Um, it's never determined which previous life Nirmal might have been recalling on his deathbed, though, um, when he said, like, you know, you're not my mother and I want to go home. Um, right. Because there wasn't enough information there to do anything with. Hmm. The second case that Stevenson talks about is unique, kind of even for me, um, in that the previous life the child recalls was someone who died several years into the child's current life. Hmm. And I heard that and immediately said, like, how in the fuck, like, did his soul get displaced or replaced or whatever? Right. Feels very fake. Like, how how could this possibly be correct? Yeah. Um, As it turns out, this child, um, just beer, got extremely ill with smallpox at about three and a half years old um, to the point that his father thought that he was dead. Like, Hmm. come on, everyone, please come help me bury my son. My son has died. Oh, geez. Um, And his brother and other men in the village are like, "Mm, it's 
it's kind of late it's kind of dark outside can we like wait until the morning mm-hmm. um which is like okay sure um and during the night just beer's father notices that his son actually starts moving again like twitching mm-hmm. a little bit um until his son actually like fully revives um but it takes days for him to be able to speak again and weeks for him to be able to be like coherently understood um except when this happens his vocabulary has entirely changed now he's using different words and they're more aristocratic words that a different cast uses (gasps) keep in mind he's like three and a half years old oh my god um this takes place the spring of 1954 which is the same time that a man named so so uh soberam that's what i'm gonna say a man named soberam dies um, a man that this three and a half year old just beer essentially is not claiming to be mm-hmm. um, doesn't have his name but has the name of his father where he's from um, and we'll get into like the backstory that he has um, and how they eventually decide that this is who he is mm-hmm. this man um, without a name he still knows these details about this man this man is part of a higher caste than just beer's family um so just beer refuses to eat like at all because the quality of his family's food and the way in which it is prepared is not to his standards and the way that his caste can eat oh my gosh um and a neighbor of the um dead soba's cast volunteers to actually cook for just beer for the next like year and a half two years so that the child does not starve to death <laughs> Oh my God. Imagine if you were his parents. Like, are you kidding me? They were over it. They were <laughs> so over it. And it only lasts two years because um, eventually Jez Beard gives in and stops being so picky about his food because his family continues to pressure him about it and keeps trying to trick him to eat their food instead <laughs> to like <laughs> prove that it's all fake or get him to cut this nonsense out. Oh my God. Um, it's like, yeah, my kid died. He came back and now he's a total snob. <laughs> little fucking asshole <laughs> wow what a thing though like the last thing he expects like yeah my i thought my kid was dead almost buried him alive he came back now he refuses to eat out of the pots that the rest of the family eats and now he's just an elitist prick <laughs> <laughs> i hate to say that about a four-year-old but <laughs> gives me no choice <laughs> <laughs> Um, in this time, Jasbir details his past life, saying that he is from Vahiti, um, and that during a wedding procession, he was given poison sweets by a man who owed him money, um, and that he subsequently fell from his chariot, hit his head, and he died. Um, and Sobaram, the dead man, did indeed, we find out later, fall from his chariot during a wedding procession and die. Um, though there was never any suspicion of foul play until Jasbir's claims. Um, and this is something that I forgot to uh, write down. But another thing that um, Stevenson was would do as part of his research, especially when it came to birthmarks, um, as he would request uh, like police reports and autopsy records mm. um, and would actually compare like the injuries and in autopsy reports to like birthmarks and things like that. So he wouldn't just take people like at their word, like, oh yeah, they died in this way, blah, blah, blah. He would, if possible, track down records and be like, oh yeah, like he was shot. He was shot like mm. exactly right here. Um, and that's exactly where like this birth mark is and that's Um, cool 
Yeah. So that's another way in which he tried to be like as scientific about it as possible. It's not just like believing what they had to say, but actually trying to track down physical, like concrete records for things. Yeah. Um, this family tried to keep just beer's past life a secret um kind of like in the last story um but being a kid fed food from a higher caste um is kind of news that gets around it's really hard to hide the fact that your four-year-old's being fed by your like upper class neighbor right um because he refuses to eat your food um <laughs> right <laughs> that takes being like picky to a whole new level like I was a picky eater as a kid like if it had like tomatoes in it like I would sit at the table for hours instead of consuming my dinner but could you imagine if I was yeah if I was like caviar and nothing bitch bring it to the table (laughs) I'll go on a hunger strike unless I get caviar and lobster I used to be an aristocrat in a past life so yeah um I'm sorry that's <laughs> just the way that it is mother it's <laughs> the way that it must be mother oh my god I love children I do too I so should have done something like that though <laughs> I wish I had now yeah maybe I would have actually gotten dinner occasionally <laughs> instead of uh eating it for breakfast the next day when I tried oh, oh gross yeah you um anyway uh years later Yasbir, like in our last story has a chance meeting with a visiting woman from this higher caste to the area um and recognizes her again didn't write this down but stevenson would definitely break down like um all of the connections between the families who do they have in common be it through like work or village whatever has literally anyone ever traveled through these villages um and like would track down people uh like this woman um but would be like you know what she only visits like every five or so years he is like uh four years old at this point a little bit older um like no way the last time that uh she visited would they have had any contact if they had it was Mm -hmm. still at a period of time where you know just beer was not acting like this new personality yeah so trying to like break things down as much as possible um to be and it's a little bit easier back in I think like the the 50s and 60s to do this than as opposed to it would be nowadays when you can FaceTime literally everyone and there's so much influence from like the internet and things true um, that everyone's a little bit more uh feels like segregated yeah past yeah um he recognizes this visiting woman um and she takes this news back home to her family and it's from there that they discover his beer's past life um that closely resembles the life of a 22 year old member of their own family soba uh Sobaram. the story follows a similar path as the last that the family visits yes beer recognizes multiple members of them uh the family they bring him to their village and he successfully navigates it and recognizes um things in the house and things around town a quick aside that stevenson does spend part of his research establishing patterns in reincarnation stories within and across cultures which i thought was interesting 
um, like what happens within this culture over and over, what happens across cultures over and over. So something like um, children being between the ages of, I think it's like three and six, whenever they, they have these past memories is something that kind of transcends mm-hmm. culture. Birthmarks also kind of transcend culture, um, but something uh, like whether people change sex with their next life um, could be confined to within a culture that um, somewhere like it would only be if you were a woman in your past life, you were a woman again, whatever each story mm-hmm. you would encounter, um, or, you know, ones where it would flip flop back and forth. Um, so he would try and find similarities in ages, the importance of birthmarks of dreams and cultures of wordings of details, um, which I thought was, again, you know, another kind of scientific way to come about it to try and categorize things that, yeah. that way. I also just thought it was interesting because I've never really thought much about um, how reincarnation would present differently within cultures. Yeah, me neither. Other than the fact that maybe some cultures would be uh, more open to it, like actually existing. Right. Um, Yasbir spending so much time with this higher caste family and claiming a past life does alienate him in his own village and it leaves him very lonely most of the time. This is another thing that um, Stevenson uses to kind of argue that um, like if it's fraud or not, then like there was a really high cost for Yasbir that literally no one really wanted to talk to him because of this. Um, And so like was the cost like worth it in this case if everybody was making things up um he doesn't really think so because he talked to Yasbir and was like he just seems like a really extremely lonely young man now um Yasbir does grow extremely attached to Soba's son um but isn't allowed as many visits as he or his former family would like as the years pass one detail Stevenson includes um, that clearly opens the door for questioning this case. Um, like I said before, he'll lay everything out. Um, it's because of Yasbir's family's refusal to let him visit his old family. Um, his old family, who, as we recall, is of a higher caste, does bribe his family and give them things that they normally would not like have um, or couldn't accomplish because of their their cast so um mm-hmm. they do gain things from Yasbir claiming to be um Soba yeah and like I said anybody else could have easily like omitted that completely um but Stevenson does put it that there so that you can question it and of course it does make me question the validity validity of it mm-hmm. um which I think it's supposed to yeah to wrap up Yasbir's case, he tells Stevenson about what he remembers of the afterlife before he was Yasbir, um, which I always find this really interesting in reincarnation stories whenever children will say like, oh, I remember being up in the sky and like mm. talking with God and God is like, you know what, you're going to go down. That's going to be your new mommy or whatever. And so yeah. I chose you. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Um, and the way that that looks in... Um, Yasbir's case so like this uh Hindu culture is that he died as Soba um and when he was dead he met a holy man so like a shaman and so okay. God mm-hmm. um and this holy man told him to take cover in the sick young um Yasbir's body um which he did which is why we get that whole transformation um and him seemingly coming back uh to life 
Hmm. Um, and his memory of this encounter um, with the holy man is subject to the most change, Stevenson says. Um, he says it's likely because of, um, you know, confabulation. Just the more he recalls this memory, the more he's altering it in the process of bringing it back up. Um, but also that uh, two Jezbeers likely had a dozen people tell him a dozen different stories about what he said about this holy man when he was a child. Right. Um, and it's all mixed together now with his half remembered like memory of what happened. Um, as opposed to details about his past life and past family that aren't subject to as much change because you can solidly say that's Soba's son whose name is blank or mm. Soba died in the spring of 1954 as stated in these physical records. Right. We can't contest that stuff. Right. But that's true of like victims of trauma. It's mm -hmm. true of like criminals who 100% committed the crime that they're describing like the memory like memory is just weird it's wonky and wispy and subjective yeah it's a it's a very strange thing so that's stevenson says that this memory of the holy man is kind of the one that um is the strangest and the wispiest um but i think it's really interesting um to see that you know it's a holy man who told him to do this instead mm -hmm. of um, like a God figure. Um, and I kind of wonder if you found all of those different moments in all of these different cultures, um, you know, what it would look like. Like, is it always a God figure? Um, could it be aliens in some case? Could it be nothing? Um, like, what does it look like in each individual culture? And is there a reason for that? Like, does that right. mean that one culture is like empirically right? Or does the afterlife literally look different for everyone who encounters right. it no I would be fascinated to read like a whole series of books on that subject for sure mm -hmm. yeah I would be so fascinated because I am so fascinated um by you know afterlives and I don't think that there is my opinion I don't really think that there is one I think that everybody is a little bit right in their own way um and we're not really going to know until we die what it really looks like yeah eye has not seen ear has not heard mm -hmm. so yeah I'm interested to see what the afterlife looks like um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to checking it out <laughs> <laughs> it's like the one thing that you can't know so it's just fascinating and you yeah. want to know it but yeah. you can't but you can't you because you gotta die <laughs> yeah and you're not supposed to know I don't think I know it yeah, yeah yep <laughs> yep I don't know I'm fascinated with the idea of the afterlife and all the different forms that it takes in every different religion and every different culture the similarities between them the differences between them that the Aztec afterlife looks absolutely nothing like the Christian afterlife. I would not want to go to the Aztec one. I'll tell you that much. Few, fewer jaguars. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> one would hope there would be minimal jaguars in heaven. <laughs> Unless there's like a super dope zoo in heaven. That'd be cool. I love yeah. a good zoo. <laughs> <laughs> just uh put that one in the old suggestion box for god <laughs> slip it in there yep do you think he would have a suggestion box i feel like he might 
Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I feel like that's something Jesus would have, uh, but not God. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Jesus is trying to get God to make some changes based on the suggestion. Like we are not putting in a Pizza Hut slash McDonald's. <laughs> we do not have the budget for a pool right now. <laughs> a KFC Long John Silver. <laughs> it's the worst one I could possibly think of. <laughs> no those are all in hell i think not heaven or maybe purgatory maybe purgatory is just like one long strip mall yes Uh, i yes all the strip malls are like exactly the same so Mm -hmm. never ending strip mall Mm -hmm. send me to purgatory (laughs) get my nails done (laughs) poorly (laughs) get a fish sandwich yeah Going to a really expensive, like, uh, international grocery store. Mm. I love the international grocery in Carbondale. I miss it. I like our weird shops. Yeah. Um. Anyway, just to wrap everything up uh, completely, um, just beer remains in touch with his old family. Um, and he was, which I think this is actually kind of cute. Um, he was consulted in the marriages of Soba's children. He <gasps> actually went to this this child because he was so attached to his former self's children and got his input on their uh, marriages. And they got to have a, a dad again. Yeah. Um, and it talks about um, Yasbir, how it's not socially acceptable to just kind of like sleep in a, a bed with like whoever you want to, um, I guess. But yes beer would sleep with one of soba's sons like together in a cot um and so it was actually like kind of touching and it showed like how much everyone believed everything that like yeah. they would allow this to happen yeah um but yeah i think it's really cute that you know they let him have um a say in all of that yeah um and then this is another detail where you can kind of pick apart the case um, that Jesbeer did get paid back the debt he was supposedly owed by that man who poisoned him. Um, so it wasn't Soba's family that got paid and there was never any proof that, you know, there was any foul play. Um, but he did get um, paid this um, money by this man. Um, and it actually was more than what he originally uh, has said what he was owed so mm. I think he ended up getting like double almost with interest <laughs> yes um and uh just beard did retain a lot of his memories again because you know he keeps in touch with his old family it's very hard to forget their names if you are quite literally confronted with them every couple of months mm-hmm. Um, Other cases in India include those of a little girl who performs songs in a language that she doesn't speak. Mm, Um, Exorcism. (laughs) (laughs) And they actually, um, they write down these songs and there's a whole big investigation to like the copyright on them when they were released, what movies they were in. Um, Did the family own like a radio or a phonograph or anything? When was the first time that this little girl ever went to the movie theater um to try and prove that like she couldn't have picked up these songs anywhere else Mm -hmm. um and yeah they quiz her in this other language and she doesn't know like any of the vocabulary Mm. of it at all um Mm. 
So it's just these songs. Um, and they're kind of half remembered too. She skips lines or she makes things up a little bit. Um, which uh, Stevenson talks about how that's something that you might do if you learn a song in another language that you don't speak, um, flub words, skip lines, because you have no idea what any of it means. Right. So you're not going to know where you're fucking up. Right. It's, it's just sounds. sounds. Yeah, exactly. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, there's another case of a boy who was murdered um, and he has a birthmark on his neck in that spot. So like a line across his neck because um, oh, he was decapitated. Ouch. Um, yeah. Um, and his he was very afraid of his murderers because he did encounter them. Um, and the family did want to be able to prosecute these people based on his um, past life recall. Mm. Obviously, that could not be legally done. So whoa imagine if it was true though and those guys like (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh my gosh terror sheer terror Mm -hmm. um but uh it was something about how um this boy was like the only heir of this man um and other family members wanted to be able to inherit his stuff and so they they killed the boy oh god um but yeah, that was an, an interesting one. There are other ones that are really interesting where people recall like the spe- specific way in which they died. Um, they became attached to like members of this old family. Um, it's really kind of sad that there are two cases of the two young, I think it's both of the young girls, um, but definitely one of them um, that become um, like really enamored with like the husbands that they left behind. Mm. So imagine these like little like five-year-olds just completely distraught watching. And in <laughs> one case, um, the husband got remarried. Um, mm-hmm. and she was as a child, very heartbroken to watch her past husband um, get remarried, I think, to a neighbor. Oh, my God. I'm picturing her, like, standing up at the wedding saying she objects. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) these um, second, like, wives, the second wife in this case, um, was very jealous of the husband paying any attention to this child because it was his former wife. Yeah. Um, so it's just a really such a weird dynamic (laughs) it is but like it would so suck if you were a kid with all of these memories of just having like last year having been married to this person it's like well Mm. I'm I'm literally a fucking child now and there's it would be so frustrating Mm -hmm. and just watch them have kids with somebody else it's like well this fucking sucks oh yeah that's awful because that's not like you're reborn as like a, an 18 year old and you have a the chance or anything it's like right no, it just really sucks whether you believe in these stories or not they're very interesting reads um I was surprised to learn that not all, not all and this doesn't come from um Stevenson's work I read this in a um a really cool survey um, I was surprised to learn that not all Hindus believe in reincarnation um, mm. and that Muslims and Christians in India do believe in reincarnation. Hmm. Um, I thought that like um, reincarnation was like this mainstream like belief um, in Hinduism, but apparently I want to say it's like only 40% or something like that of Hindus actually believe hmm. in reincarnation. That is surprising. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Muslims and Christians, I want to say, uh, I'm going to pull it up actually, cause I don't want to misspeak. Of course, it's going to scroll all the way down. Um, Hindus, it's about 40%. Muslims is about 27% and Christians, it's about 29% of them believe in reincarnation. 
Um, so in general, the population is about 38%. Okay. Um, you know, it's very interesting um, to see how um, is uh, Islam and uh, Christianity work in different parts of the world, how they intersect with um, beliefs. And I think uh, we said that Hinduism is the oldest religion in the world or is one of the oldest um, just because it dates back so far um, mm-hmm. and remains like relatively unchanged since then. So Hinduism is very cool. It is, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also interesting that um, despite reincarnation being something we associate more with the Eastern world, or at least in my opinion, we do because of like um, um, Buddhists and um, uh, Hindus. Uh, yeah. The Western world actually had a greater amount of cases in Stevenson's works um, because apparently Alaska has a ton of really life recall yeah very strange um i never heard of any cases in alaska so maybe i need to take a trip on to alaska at some point in the show or in person yeah um, i don't know seems kind of cold you gotta fly there <laughs> i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> i suppose you could drive <laughs> don't you have to go through like canada to do it though yeah i mean i feel like canada's chill yeah I'm just always afraid of crossing borders, though, and, like, what if they keep me? Which I suppose that could be worse, stuck worse places than Canada. Than Canada, yeah. I feel, it? Like, I feel like it's better than the U.S. if I had been, like, kidnapped. Right, right. like, if you were going into the U.S., you would be in more danger than if you were going into Canada, I think. Yeah, but it's just an irrational fear that like I would get stuck in another country on accident, even if I had everything that I needed. And then yep. like my cat would be down here, like wondering where dinner's at. Cause I need oh. oh no. <laughs> yeah. No, I have those fears too. I get scared every time I fly that I have a gun in my luggage. Yes. It's like, did I accidentally bring my knife with me here to the airport? Um, am I am I going to say the word bomb? on accident <laughs> or on purpose, on my, purpose. Uh, let my intrusive thoughts win yeah some those intrusive thoughts man <sighs> yeah they'll get you mm-hmm. um anyway now that is all that i brought for you today but i do hope that it was at least mildly entertaining <laughs> it was mildly entertaining <laughs> <laughs> thank you three out of five stars i'll take it <laughs> i don't know I don't know what I think. I feel like 30% of me fully believes it. Like and I said, I believe in reincarnation and don't believe in most of the cases that I, I... Right, that's the thing. Like, I believe in the idea of it. But when I'm like, I don't know, but I believe the stories that you told. Like, I don't think those people were just lying. No, but you can be mistaken. Like, right, mine is just like so I don't know malicious kind of that there's like an agenda behind that you can't just be mistaken and I think in a lot of cases that's what (laughs) happens um is that people aren't necessarily lying for attention or they want to be somebody famous because people always remember being some famous person in a past life it feels like all these Um, John Lennon's running around um but yeah cases of reincarnation I love to read about them just like I like to read about um 
cases of uh, possession and I like to read mm-hmm. about hauntings um, but you can show me a million a million videos of people are like this is my haunted apartment look at the cabinets open I'll be like fake somebody's like it's just a, a string somewhere. yeah yeah this was edited like I, I believe in ghosts and I'm like bullshit no way. <laughs> it's not real yeah no I feel the same way because I think what it comes down to for me is I don't want to look stupid. Like I don't hate feeling gullible. I know. I know. But deep down I am really gullible. gullible. Like it's bad. I've said that I can't get on (laughs) social media on April Fool's Day because I'll just believe everything that I read. Did I tell you? (laughs) I saw that like we were talking about how Pornhub did that. Um, April Fool's Day prank on people where they mm-hmm. said like okay success like successfully shared to Facebook <laughs> yeah. and we were we were both like I would kill myself <laughs> yes I would that's probably why they haven't done it since I bet like a lot of people did like have a heart attack or like mm-hmm. like something awful yeah I'm yeah so I'm gullible too but I think like I don't know. Maybe that's why we became immensely uh, skeptical. Yes. And like developed this like desire to learn that some people like don't have. It's wild how some people just accept things. I wish I was like that and I don't. Life would be easier, but I would. Life would be so easier. Yeah. 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 Anyway, this was. That was good. Good Fun job. little talk about reincarnation. Please yeah. teach me about your um, saint now. And I know oh, it's going to be a juicy problematic. <laughs> yeah. Ready. Big time. Okay, here we go. Before I start, I'd like everybody to just think back to a time when they didn't do their best at something every day five minutes ago how they were treated because of that and how they wish they'd been treated (laughs) then just apply that type of grace to me (laughs) and let me just let me off the hook a little what does it matter to you Um, this is a big one and the big ones are scary to me. I don't like to do them. I like to do the unknowns where no one can prove I'm wrong about things or that I left things out. Um, and I'm going to leave stuff out of this one. I know that I am. I didn't have time. Um, I, or I don't have time to get into everything. Um, so I'm just gonna encourage you if you're interested to do your own research and uh, go read the sources that I'm going to cite or watch them um, and then just see what you think. So you gave me India and there's really just one overwhelming choice (laughs) Um, which is an Albanian nun named Agnes Gonche Boyajeyu otherwise known as St. Teresa of Calcutta, or simply Mother Teresa. She's an interesting figure because she's another saint that Catholics, especially those who were raised in the church like I was, um, probably have not engaged with the more controversial aspects of her life. We were only presented with very positive information about her when we were kids, um, 
Essentially, we only learned about Mother Teresa in hagiographical terms. So to grow up and to look at a wider picture that shows some things about her that are disturbing is really tough. Um, so I just wanted to say up front that I'm going to get into some stuff that might be difficult for the Catholics to hear. Um, but I'm going to try to keep it objective and it's up to you what you want to think about it. Um, speaking of which, it was tough to find objective sources for my research. Mother I Teresa bet. is one of those figures where you love her and you believe that she's a saint or you hate her and you think that she's the devil. So the Catholic sources on Mother Teresa are hagiography and that's pretty much it. Um, and the secular sources can be so negative and show so much anti-Catholic bias that it's really hard to figure out what's fact and what is rumor. So I watched a few different documentaries and I skimmed a few different books, including the only authorized autobiography of Mother Teresa, um, which was dictated, but still. Um, yeah, I couldn't find much that didn't have clear bias one way or the other. Um, so I'm working with what I got um, and let's get into it. Uh, Mother Teresa was born Agnes or Agnes on August 26th, 26th, 1910 in Skopje, which is now the capital of Macedonia, but was then part of the Ottoman Empire. Agnes was baptized the day after her birth, real quick. <laughs> Just, she came out and she was baptized. <laughs> she, she shot out of there and right into the holy water like a football doctor <laughs> exactly yep no you get it she would later say that she considered august 27th the day she was baptized as her true birthday which is very extra it's giving very much um mm -hmm. christian summer camp kid um her middle name means rosebud or little flower stick a pin in that one Agnes was the youngest child. She had an older brother and sister. Her father died when she was eight years old. It was around this age that Agnes became fascinated with the lives of the saints and missionary work, especially the missionaries who worked in Bengal. And she decided at the age of 12 that she wanted to do that as well. So she left home in 1928 at the age of 18 and traveled to Ireland to join the Sisters of Laredo. I don't know if it's Laredo or Loretto, um, but I'm going to say Laredo, I think. At Laredo Abbey in Rathfarnham, which is a south side suburb of Dublin. The Sisters of Laredo are officially called the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The order was founded in 1609 by an English woman named Mary Ward, who had been a Franciscan nun who was inspired by the teachings of Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, to create her own religious order of nuns who were not bound by the cloister, who could travel freely and were not subject to the local bishop. Mary believed that women were the intellectual equals of men and should be educated accordingly, here for it. Mary traveled through Europe on foot, establishing houses for the order. The church did not like Mary at first, um, nor did the Jesuits, no surprise. Very suspicious of women. Um, ever since that one time, uh, Ignatius got arrested for making women like roll around on the ground 
while he preached um, on the street corner, if you remember. Um, if you don't know what I'm referring to, you can check out episode 33, Ye Old Plato Leg. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, today the Sisters of Laredo can be found all over the world. According to their website, their main focus is education, but they also assist refugees, victims of human trafficking, and AIDS patients around the world. They also run literacy and vocational training programs for women around the world. Anywho, this is the order that Agnes joined in 1928. When she left Albania, it was the last time she would ever see her mother and sister. She did try to reunite with them later in life, but just wasn't able to. Um, Agnes learned English in Ireland and was assigned to go to India in 1929 to begin her novitiate in Darjeeling. It was here that she learned Bengali and she taught at a local school. She took her first vows on May 24th, 1931, taking the name of Therese of Lisieux, a saint she had always felt a special connection to, in part because of her own middle name, which meant little flower, which is St. Therese's epithet. For more on St. Therese, check out episode 31, A Healthy Gaggle of Nuns. <laughs> so because a different nun in the house was already named Therese, Agnes decided that she would go by Teresa, spelling it like Teresa of Avila. Teresa took her final vows while living at the Order's house in Calcutta on May 14th, 1937. Um, she lived and taught in Calcutta for 20 years after that, about half of the time as the school's headmistress. During those 20 years, shit got bad <laughs> in, in India, in her, in her area. Um, and she was seeing it firsthand and becoming more and more disturbed by what was going on. So, for example... Um, the Bengal famine of 1943 killed about 3 million citizens in eastern India. Um, starvation, disease, the works. Um, and then in 1946, there was Direct Action Day, which was like a nationwide series of riots. Um, and that sparked a period of large-scale violence between Hindu and Muslim people. There's a lot of controversy about who started it, like whose fault it is, but thousands of people were killed um, and thousands more fled the country as refugees. So that's the environment that Teresa and her fellow nuns are living in in India. On September 10th, 1946, just about a month after Direct Action Day, Teresa was on the train to Darjeeling for a 10-day retreat. Um, her, I didn't write this down, but her supervisor had ordered her to go on retreat because she was so stressed, basically, like anxious um, about what was going on everywhere. So he just like sent her off on a train. And he's it's like, just so funny to me that everyone else is caught up in like this inescapable mess. And she's like, I'm just so stressed being in like proximity to this. I need some time. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing is like, she was sheltered from all the bad stuff. And so I think she was, she was realizing how, shel how sheltered she was and how that kind of went against what she felt was right. So, um, this is a very famous story. Um, 
the Missionaries of Charity, which is the order that she later founds, spoiler alert, um, they call this Inspiration Day, and they celebrate it every year, um, September 10th. Um, so the story goes that she was on the train to Darjeeling when she heard a voice in her head. Um, so she was looking at all the poor people on the streets who had been displaced by the riots. Like every every train stop, she would look out the window and just see like absolute chaos and misery and destruction. And she heard in her head the words, I thirst, which were some of Jesus's last words as he was dying on the cross, um, which is why the Roman soldiers dipped that um, rag in wine and like held it up on a stick for him to drink from. Um, some of his last words were, I thirst. Um, and she says that she had this sudden deeper understanding of what those words meant. Um, and she took them to mean that Jesus was thirsting for peace among his people for understanding, um, and for them to love and serve each other. And that she needed to take a more active role in that service. So she made up her mind what she would do over the course of the 10 day retreat. And she would later write, quote, I was to leave the convent and help the poor while living among them. It was an order. To fail would have been to break the faith. So when she returned to Calcutta, she asked permission to leave her position at the school, which was finally granted in 1948. She would later say that leaving the Laredo house was the hardest thing she ever did, harder even than leaving her family and her home country. When she left, she began ministering to the poor of Calcutta. Um, she wore a plain white cotton sari with a blue border, which is probably what she's wearing in like all the pictures you see of her. Um, it's kind of iconic. Um, it's her look. It's her vibe. Uh, yeah, she liked the color blue because it's the color of the Virgin Mary. Um, and other than that, it was just like the simplest thing she could find. So she received Indian citizenship in those first few years. And she also received basic medical training at a hospital. And then in 1949, Teresa was joined by a group of like-minded young women. And together, these women founded the Missionaries of Charity in 1950, which is when Sister Teresa became Mother Teresa. In the first year that the missionaries were established, they faced a lot of difficulties, including searching for a building where they could live and work out of. Teresa wrote in her diary, quote, while looking for a home, I walked and walked till my arms and legs ached. I thought how much the poor must ache in body and soul, looking for a home, food, and health. Then the comfort of Laredo came to tempt me. You have only to say the word and all that will be yours again, the tempter kept on saying. Of free choice, my God, and out of love for you, I desire to remain and do whatever be your holy will in my regard. I did not let a single tear come. So after Teresa and the other missionaries received um, Vatican approval for their order in 1950, they opened their first hospice called the Kaligat Home for the Dying, which they converted from an abandoned Hindu temple. Um, so the word means, uh, it's a contraction of Kali, the goddess whose temple it originally was, and God um, is a hospice, like home for the dying. Um, so they would soon rename it Home of the Pure Heart. 
In Mother Teresa's words, this hospice would care for the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the leopards, the leopards, oh no, the leopards. Not the jaguars. (laughs) No, they stay outside. Um, No room for them at the end. The lepers. Can I get a bed not next to a leopard, please? (laughs) Um, I'd like to put in for a bed transfer. Uh, My roommate. A a non leopard room. (laughs) Leopard or not leopard when they walk in, (laughs) like smoking or not smoking. Leopard question mark. She Um, chose the leopard. (laughs) (laughs) The leopard just. Just fucking mauls her. Oh God, <laughs> that's fucked up. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Lepers continue. Uh, yes. Um, and and all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society, people that have become a burden and are shunned by everyone. Um, <laughs> and leopards. Uh, <laughs> no. So the hospice was free to the poor and those who came there would receive medical attention and would be allowed to die with dignity in accordance with their faith. So um, Muslims could be read the Quran, Hindus could receive holy water from the Ganges, and Catholics could receive anointing of the sick. Um, I wrote here, I made a note that I would come back to this idea of like dying in accordance with their faith later, but then I forgot to. So um, I'll just say it now, I guess. Um, One of the things that Mother Teresa has been accused of, like um, by her critics, is that she would give people secret baptisms um, when they were dying. Mm. Like people who were Hindu or Muslim, she would real subtly baptize them right before they died. Um, So I've seen this in a few different places. I've seen it in some people's, some like former missionaries um, accounts, which are what I trust most out of, instead of like, you know, big atheist journalists or, and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. who like to make fun of her and stuff. Um, So one of the missionaries, and this is in the autobiography and everything. One of the missionaries uh, talked about it and said like, you know, like there were times when we were encouraged to baptize the dying um, and Mother Teresa would do it too. Um, And there were cases where they probably shouldn't have, um, like looking back. Um, And it got me thinking. And then there's another account that says like, oh, I never did that. Like, and I never saw it done. Like that just, that wasn't something that we did. We would, we would help them die in accordance with their faith. So I've seen conflicting accounts. Um, and, and then one that stuck in my head was one of the missionaries saying, um, we would ask them, we would ask them like, do you want to be with God in heaven? And if they said yes, then we would baptize them. But of course that's a leading question. And of course it doesn't really give you all the information that you need to make an informed decision, especially when you're like on the brink of death. (laughs) Also, I don't know if I was dying and somebody from, let's not even use Christianity, but uh, just some wildly different faith, uh, Mm. the Pastafarians or whatever, the people who worship (laughs) the flying spaghetti monster. Yeah. Um, what on my deathbed I'm just trying to die peacefully they're like 
would you like to be baptized so that you can go <laughs> to heaven with the flying spaghetti monster? It's like, I am trying to croak in peace. <laughs> <laughs> Please leave me alone. Please don't proselytize to me right now. <laughs> right. And as the operation um, led the order, as the order gets bigger, um, there, there are more foreign nuns um, who come and they, they learn English because that's the language of the order Mm -hmm. that they speak with each other um but these people might that they're taking care of could very well not speak English and have no idea Mm -hmm. what they're saying so if they get like a tiny little nod as a response and they just baptize the (laughs) person (laughs) don't give (laughs) (laughs) affirmative (laughs) go take his half dead body hoist it up into the dunk tank let's all throw baseballs the dunk tank (laughs) We don't do that, just so you know. We don't do. The- I know you do the very delicate, like water on the. We do a yeah. We do a little splash on the forehead. Yeah, yeah. It's not as cool as the way the Protestants do it. I'm sorry. I accept that. <laughs> I accept that. I I gotta spice up your version of Christianity with the way the Protestants do baptism. That's the thing. Is that some denominations of protestantism are way weirder than catholicism i went to churches with dunk tanks in the front of them okay (laughs) that's crazy to me these people um dunk tanks like where you like threw balls at it and everything where like the whole drop was like behind the cross like into the wall recessed mm. into the wall mm. the front of it was all glass so that you could see straight into this massive mm. like tub and they would come down from both sides on different sets of stairs meet in the middle and just dunk them it was a whole performance wow yeah so that's what I like to picture because you guys are all about like aesthetics and performance and that's like the one thing that the Protestants do that I'm like yeah (laughs) (laughs) um 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 so yeah there's that whole controversy did she give people secret baptisms probably um should she have done that no not cool um really not cool but uh yeah so that's uh that's a mark against uh old Agnes I would say old Agnes (laughs) mother Teresa in my head with old Agnes little old Aggie um so where was I okay yeah so Teresa said about this hospice that it was a place for people who lived like animals to die like angels knowing that they were loved and wanted um great sentiment something that is always fascinating to me is like the daily routines of members of different religious orders um Mm -hmm. And the autobiography includes a really good detailed description of what daily life was like for members of the Missionaries of Charity, which was great. So when they finally found their home in Calcutta, they started off as just 12 members, um, in, not including Teresa, so 13 total members, but they, they grew pretty quickly. And when they found their home in Calcutta, it was a little place on a very busy street. It was loud. But they had all the room that they needed in those early days. And Mother Teresa would say often that their extreme poverty was their safeguard. She would say that she didn't want the missionaries of charity to fall into the same trap that other religious orders had fallen into throughout history, where they began by serving the poor 
and then sort of just unconsciously drifted into serving the rich. She would also say that they needed to live in poverty in order to truly understand the people that they helped, um, which makes sense to me. So what did this extreme poverty look like? Um, each missionary of charity was given three plain cotton saris with blue stripes, um, one to wear, one to wash, and one to mend. They were given coarse underwear, a pair of sandals, a crucifix, a rosary, an umbrella during the rainy season, a metal bucket for washing, and a straw mattress. But even just these basic things were often shared among sisters as the order grew. So <laughs> there are some funny anecdotes um, in the autobiography, like how one time the sisters were going to mass, like I think it was midnight mass on um, Christmas Eve. And so they, they needed shoes because the church was down the street, um, but there weren't any shoes available uh, <laughs> for them to wear. The only pair that um, this one sister had access to were these like bright red stilettos. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, this will go great with my nun look. Look, really target up. <laughs> this is just the amount the amount of of slut that I need for Christmas mass. Slut um, it up for Jesus. <laughs> exactly. So this nun is just like hobbling down the street. <laughs> and these bright red stilettos it's just so funny to me um and her cotton her plain cotton sari and her louboutins um they also sometimes had to make underclothes out of old grain sacks and their saris would be so like they'd get so faded from washing and washing over and over again that you could read the words on the grain sacks underneath <laughs> the sari. <laughs> so it would say things like not for resale. <laughs> <laughs> so good. You just can't make this shit up. I love it. Um so the daily schedule was like this. Um, during the week, the sisters would rise at 4.40 a.m. Immediately, no. Um, for the Benedicamus Domino, which is just a call and response meeting, meaning let us bless the Lord. On Sundays, they woke up even earlier at 4.15. They would use ash from the fires to clean their teeth. And they washed themselves and their clothes with a bar of soap that had been cut into six pieces. From 5.15 to 6.45, they attended mass and morning prayers, followed by a very simple breakfast. And by 7.45, they were out the door, and they would either be going around begging for food for the poor, or they would be going to the hospice to take care of sick people. At noon, they came home for lunch and some housework, and then Teresa made them rest for a half hour every day. Um, then they went back out into the city and they would return home at six for more prayers and dinner. After dinner, they would mend their clothes and then they were given time for recreation, which was the only time that they were allowed to speak to each other about things other than like the daily business. Um, so everybody loved rec time because they could tell all their stories about like what happened to them during the day. Um, and then they were in bed by 10. 
In addition to the first hospice, the Missionaries of Charity also opened a children's home, which started as really just a type of like hospital slash orphanage for like sick, abandoned children. But it eventually grew into like a full on home and school as well. So parents would bring children they couldn't care for. The sisters um, in their travels around the city would um, search garbage cans and dumps for abandoned infants and bring them to the home. Some of these children would eventually be reunited with their parents, but some uh, would be adopted and the remaining ones would be educated at the little school until they were old enough to leave. Um, another thing I meant to circle back to but didn't, and so I'll talk about it now, was the fact that some of these uh, missionaries were accused of selling children uh-huh. from this home. Yeah, not good. Um, but this happened af- like long after Mother Teresa was dead, um, so I don't think that she had anything to do with this situation. And I think it was kind of a one-off, um, at least I hope. Like, there's no evidence of it being mm-hmm. some kind of, like, weird, like, <laughs> child-selling ring. <laughs> it was probably just uh, bad people. Um, mm-hmm. A couple bad ones, you know? Um, so, but I wanted to bring it up because I didn't want to, like, glaze over that because it is, it is very serious. Um, so one thing about Mother Teresa was that she was always practical, She provided practical care, and um, she did start her religious life as a teacher. So what she did was she bought a few typewriters for the children's home, and she taught the older girls how to type so that they would have a marketable skill when they left the home um, and were more likely to get a job. She also taught carpentry and needlework, and probably the most touching detail that I read about this home was that Mother Teresa would provide the young women who were about to leave the home with a wedding dowry, even if it was just like a set of clothes, a little bit of money, and like a few trinkets, at least they would be leaving with something. I just found that like really nice, like a little above and beyond. But of course, uh, the work of the missionaries of charity did not go without uh, criticism. In terms of the children's home, there was controversy because a lot of government officials and outside like foreign observers would say things like, well, if you're so interested in like helping um, these infants, why don't you, why don't you support abortion? Why don't you support birth control? Because if you want fewer babies to die, then fewer babies should be born into terrible conditions and against the, the mother's will, you know? Um, which is a fair point. Mm-hmm. Um, but also <laughs> expecting a Catholic nun to advocate for abortion is like a little bit silly. Like yeah. she she doesn't have to do everything and be everything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so these people who are saying these things really are taking issue with Catholic dogma, not with Mother Teresa's charity work. And like, like, she's just following orders. She's following the church teaching, you know. So I understand that criticism, but I think it's misdirected. um, And I think it's a little bit irrelevant. And Mother Teresa did advocate for natural family planning. 
um, which is endorsed by the church. It's just the idea that like married couples should be educated about their fertility um, and that women should learn about their reproductive cycles instead of just like slapping a bandage of hormonal birth control or sterilization on the situation. Um, so the missionaries of charity did teach people about natural family planning, which did work to decrease the birth rate in Calcutta. So like, in my view, it's fine with me. Um, but apparently not enough for some people. They also want her to be like <laughs> a liberal, like feminist advocate, I guess, mm -hmm. um, because everybody has to be perfect to be good, I guess. Um, anyway, the missionaries of charity also opened a hospice for people with leprosy called City of Peace. They opened leprosy clinics throughout Calcutta and eventually all of India to provide medication and dressings and food. Their work was definitely revolutionary in this sense. Leprosy was prominent in Calcutta, but it was so stigmatized that often people who had the disease would conceal it and would wait to seek treatment until it was too late to be cured because they were afraid of being branded unclean or untouchable. Um, I'm not going to pretend to understand like all the intricacies of the Indian caste system, but I do know that it's pretty rigid and that it's hereditary um, and that mm -hmm. the term untouchables was still in use at this time. It's not anymore. It, it was declared illegal, but changing the word doesn't erase the connotation that the people she was helping were considered the lowest of the low. Um, and by associating them, she associating with them, she was potentially like harming herself, her reputation, et cetera. So in that way, I think this was very brave, but also I think we need to go back to some of her critics to keep like a balanced perspective. So there are a few arguments against Mother Teresa that are just kind of regurgitated over and over again by her detractors in the same way that her positive aspects are regurgitated by her supporters. Um, so one of the arguments against her is that she did not revolutionize the care of poor people in Calcutta to the extent that her supporters claim she did. Um, one of her most prominent critics is an Indian doctor named Arup Chatterjee, who was an activist in the 1980s in Calcutta. He's the author of the book Mother Teresa, The Untold Story, and he's been interviewed in multiple critical documentaries about her. He says in his book that he never saw any missionaries of charity in the slums of Calcutta when he worked there. Um, he's like, yeah, I was there, never saw a single nun. They weren't there. They weren't doing anything. Um, he also accuses Mother Teresa of promoting a cult of suffering. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, that's Catholicism. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's what... Tagline: <laughs> Cult of suffering. <laughs> suffer for Jesus. Um, Hashtag yeah. Suffer for Jesus. I mean, that's what Catholics do, mm -hmm. or what they're supposed to do. So we've seen firsthand on the podcast, time and again, um, that that's the way that saints behave. Um, but he says that the suffering went beyond the extreme poverty that the missionaries lived in. He says that it extended to the people that they cared for too. 
So his book features interviews with former missionaries and lay people who knew or worked with Mother Teresa, some of whom allege that the standards of care were essentially horrific in the hospices that the missionaries ran. They reused equipment, um, like surgical instruments and needles without properly cleaning them. They would not give their patients proper pain medication. They gave their patients baths in cold water. Um, It is 100% true that the missionaries did not receive adequate medical training. But I also think that Mother Teresa and her vision for these hospices was simply incompatible with modern secular ideas of what a place like this should have been like. Um, So the modern Western way of treating poverty would be like at the systemic level, like the institutional level, like, oh, we need to vote on these things. We need to educate women. We need women to have access to birth control um, so that they can rise out of poverty so that their kids can have better lives. And it's like, yeah, ideally, that would be great. Um, But there are people living on the streets right now whose wounds are rotting and filled with maggots. So what are we going to do about that right now? And that has always been the focus of the missionaries of charity. What small thing can I do right this very second to make someone else feel like a human being instead of like trash? Um, And so there's, there's no waiting around for money for medical training for the sisters. Um, It's like, can you put a bandage on a wound? Great, go do it. So I definitely do see how things could have been better and should have been better um, had she accepted the donations that she got, um, which is another big criticism of her, um, was her handling of the funds donated to her organization. People will say like, oh, this is suspicious that like she's getting all this foreign money from these these Western people, but she's not using it to improve the conditions of the these hospitals that she runs. Um, like, where's this money going? It's a mystery. Um, well, Mother Teresa gave the order that the money should go to Rome and should sit in a bank account there to be used for emergencies only. I read that there is so much money in that account that if she had ever made a substantial withdrawal, the entire bank might have been in danger of defaulting. (laughs) So I can see an interpretation of that being positive and negative. Like I could see like, yeah, she, she should have used it to make conditions a little better. Um, but also like, this is just my opinion. Um, and it's biased for sure. But also I personally think that the poor people she helped were not made to be worse off by a cold bath instead of no bath. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They could have died in the mud on the side of the road. Instead, they're, they're dying in an overcrowded hospital on a cot. Like it's a, it's a step up, I would say. Um, And mother Teresa would often say things like, I'm not a social worker. I'm not a politician. I'm not a doctor. I'm not trying to affect large scale societal change. Like I'm not a socialist. I am just trying to do something small for these people. Um, So it's tough. It's tough. Um, I also do think that it's relevant and we have to remember who she is, um, which is a Catholic nun. 
Um, of course, she's going to have a certain perspective about like hierarchical institutions and gender roles and all that stuff. Um, of course, she's going to believe that suffering on earth is redemptive. That's Catholic doctrine. Um, she was asked once whether she thinks that poor people should just accept their lot and um, like their suffering and just accept that they will be poor forever. And she said, I think that that would be beautiful if poor people did that. I think that somebody who is poor by choice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what she said. That's what she said. She was like, yeah, these people were born into poverty and we are poor by choice. Like that's the only difference between us. So she said that they, that poor people should compare their suffering to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And people just like tore her apart for that. I would be a little peeved. <laughs> Feel some that. type of way. It's like, okay, like my suffering <laughs> is still like valid. You don't have to use the argument of, well, other people like Jesus had it worse mm. than you. <laughs> um, so it would be great if you could accept being poor as me, a recently poor person. <laughs> would not be poor if I changed my mind in five uh-huh. years. Yeah. Um, it would yep. be great if you could just shut the fuck up yep. and be happy with what you have. Accept your lot in life. Yep. Like, do you want a cold bath or not? <laughs> do you want a cold bath or do you want the jaguar? <laughs> or the leopard? Fuck, I <laughs> fucked it up. Um, cold bath, jaguar, leopard. Right. Yeah, we did. Um, a lot of big cats on this episode. It's like the big cat special. <laughs> My favorite part of the zoo. <laughs> Ooh, I do love the big cats. I love the snow leopards. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous. I love their big ass paws. Um, yeah, so people did not like that she said that. Um, like, oh, they were like, oh, this is like medieval. Like, this is the medieval view of the world. And it's like, again, that's not an issue that you have with Mother Teresa. That's an issue that you have with the Catholic Church. Just call it what it is. It just so happens that she happens to be one of the very few modern day saints so yeah I think that she because she became so hugely popular of a figure and became sort of like the face of Catholicism for a while um she has had to answer for a lot of things that she doesn't really have responsibility for um but I do think that there is value in certain criticisms of her Um, So another one of her prominent critics, maybe the most prominent, is a British journalist named Christopher Hitchens, who made a critical documentary about her called Hell's Angel. Um, I watched it. It is not exactly um, objective or academic in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Shocking. Um, It's like... 100% shock value um and it's like rabidly anti-catholic like whenever it showed (laughs) I was laughing because Pope John Paul would come on the screen and (laughs) he would play this like really scary like um organ music (laughs) every time it was like the Pope's um like uh uh yeah his like theme was like dun 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 With like people chanting like Gregorian chant in the background. It's like, okay, just just say it. Just come on and say it. You hate the Catholics. It's fine. Everybody hates the Catholics. You're not unique in that uh, regard. 
Um, but I thought that he did make a really good point in the documentary about how Mother Teresa represented and still re represents through the Missionaries of Charity, the Western desire to believe that someone over there is taking care of things over there. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like the idea that there's somebody who is doing the necessary work of taking care of poor people in underdeveloped countries so that we don't have to even think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and Westerners who are sold this idea are very unlikely to question it because it's comforting. Um, someone else is already taking care of it. We can send a little bit of money to that organization or person and pat ourselves on the back and just keep going about our business. Um, I thought that was a great point that we're not looking at Mother Teresa's faults because we don't want to know about them. Because if we knew about them, we might have to take a more active role in service to people who are not as well off as us. Mm -hmm. I think that's really true. So the missionaries of charity continued to expand through the donations that they received as word spread about them. A big factor in this word of mouth spread was the airing of the documentary called Something Beautiful for God, in which Teresa talked about her work with the BBC journalist Malcolm Muggeridge in 1968. That sort of exploded worldwide and brought in a lot of new members and donations. So they established hospices all over India and then expanded abroad to Venezuela, Rome, Tanzania, Austria, Peru, New York, all over the freaking place. Teresa met Pope Paul VI and would go on to have several more audiences with different popes throughout her life. She eventually would travel the world giving talks and meeting with world leaders. Some of these meetings got her a lot of criticism because she would meet with dictators, uh, communist politicians, other figures who were not the greatest, either when she knew them or like it was later, it later came out that they were convicted of fraud or sexual assault. Just like she associated with people, with certain people that were not a great look for her to be associating with. Um, her critics uh, really like to like distribute photos of her with dictators. Um, like it's some kind of secret that she met with them. Um, but she also traveled for humanitarian reasons too. So during the siege of Beirut, in 1982, she negotiated a temporary ceasefire between the Israeli and Palestinian armies. Like how? <laughs> she is tiny. <laughs> She's like this big, <laughs> little old lady. Um, so she also went to Ethiopia to feed hungry children. She assisted radiation victims in Chernobyl, earthquake victims in Armenia, all over the place. In 1979, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. She refused to attend the banquet that was to be given in her honor, instead asking that the cost of the banquet, which was about $200,000, would be given to the poor in India. When she received the prize, she was asked, what can we do to promote world peace? And she answered, go home and love your family, which was a big theme for her. Um, she would say things in speeches like, um, I go to England and someone's son is passed out drunk in the gutter because his mom kicked him out. Or I visit people in nursing homes whose families abandoned them there. 
Um, like if we, if we don't love our own family members, how are we going to help others? Like we have to take care of the family first. So she viewed the West as having a spiritual poverty that was not as easily treatable as material poverty. So as for her citizenship, she famously said, by blood, I am Albanian, by citizenship, an Indian, by faith, I am a Catholic nun. As to my calling, I belong to the world. As to my heart, I belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. She was fluent in five languages, Bengali, Albanian, Serbian, English, and Hindi. Um, so by 1996, the Missionaries of Charity operated 517 missions in over 100 countries. The number of sisters had grown from 12 to thousands, and the order now included a male branch and a contemplative or cloistered branch. Um, so I'm almost done, but it's at this point in the autobiography that we get, I guess, like the modern equivalent of the miracle section of hagiographies. Um, she has her own, um, which again, like proves that the positive sources are hagiography, like they could be considered that. Um, so she talks about a bunch of small things that she's witnessed while working in the missionaries of charity that she thinks are miraculous. Um, during a bad flood in Calcutta, she directed her novices to pray for a stop to the rain, which worked within an hour, um, and it had been raining for days. Um, when one day they ran out of food to feed the poor, the government randomly decided to close all the schools that day, and the food that would have gone to school children was sent to their house, the Missionaries of Charity house. It's like a bunch of little things. Um, that could seem like coincidences on their own. Like um, they, they once won a humanitarian award, which had the same monetary value as what it would cost to buy one of the houses that they wanted to convert into a school. Um, so stuff like that. And the miracles and how they factor into Teresa's canonization is interesting and also not without controversy, which we'll get into in a second. So on a visit to Rome in 1983 to visit Pope John Paul II, Mother Teresa had a heart attack. After a second heart attack in 1989, she got a pacemaker, but she continued to have heart problems, which were complicated further by pneumonia. She offered to resign as the head of the order, but she agreed to continue after the sisters voted by secret ballot that she should stay as the head of the order. In 1996, she fell and broke her collarbone, and a few months after that, she contracted malaria and was diagnosed with heart failure. She actually underwent an exorcism um, in addition to heart surgery, so just covering all the bases. <laughs> <laughs> just in case the doctor was wrong, <laughs> right. and this she... is in case Beelzebub. <laughs> there is a chance um, that this could be Beelzebub. Um, so just in case, yeah. Um, in 1997, she finally resigned as head of the order, and she died on September 5th of that year, just a few months after she resigned. At the time of her death, the missionaries had over 4,000 sisters, and the Associated Brotherhood had 300 members. They were operating 610 missions in 123 countries. Mother Teresa lay in an open casket in St. Thomas Church in Calcutta for a week before her funeral, which was a state funeral given by the Indian government in honor of her service to the poor. 
Her death was definitely a huge worldwide event in both secular and religious communities. The UN Secretary General made a statement saying, she is the United Nations, she is peace in the world. So obviously the canonization process started very soon after her death. And again, because she wasn't a martyr, two miracles were required for her canonization, as well as documentation that she had lived a life of heroic virtue. In 2002, the Vatican affirmed the first miracle, which was the apparent healing of an abdominal tumor in an Indian woman after holding a locket containing Mother Teresa's picture to her abdomen. Um, Despite reports by the woman's doctor that the tumor had been treated with modern medicine uh, over the course of a year, um, this was accepted as a miracle. (sighs) Hospital officials would later say that they had been coerced into stating that the cure was miraculous. Do with that what you will. That's all I know about the situation. Doesn't look great. (laughs) The second miracle was confirmed by Pope Francis in 2015. It was the healing of a Brazilian man with brain tumors. I didn't find criticism of this miracle the same way that the previous miracle has been criticized, Um, but I also didn't look super hard into it either because I ran out of time. So it could very well be that it was also fraudulent, um, as I assume the first one was. I don't have the information. I encourage you to look it up on your own if you're interested. Um, Anyway, based on these two miracles, Mother Teresa was canonized in 2016 and has gone on to have a massive legacy throughout the world in secular and religious spheres. She was even in an episode of the YouTube sensation Epic Rap Battles of History, in which she rap battled Sigmund Freud, which I think is her greatest contribution to modern history. And that is St. Teresa of Calcutta. (laughs) (laughs) All of that was interesting. I never knew much about um, Mother Teresa beyond uh, like a tiny little book I think I read in maybe second or third grade about Mm. her, which was traumatizing because it was talking about like maggots being in wounds and I'm like yep I'm in third grade (laughs) (laughs) I just want to play with a (laughs) play-doh I remember that too I remember like Sunday school um learning about that and yes the maggots in in people's wounds and just thinking like oh my god I could never do that and I never want to it it messed me up a little bit because like I associated them with dead people for sure but had no idea that they could be on a live person Um, no it's horrifying it's like one of those stories you read about like a cockroach crawling out of a person and you just have intrusive thoughts about it forever yeah or like how spiders crawl in your ear while you're sleeping yeah um I just pretend spiders don't exist until I'm physically confronted with one Mm -hmm. and then it's always like oh my god like I'm so surprised every time yeah that's why I keep a lot of bug spray on hand and just Mm -hmm. murder the bastard Mm -hmm. um makes me feel better it's probably gonna land me in hell but (laughs) (laughs) probably just slowly poisoning to death one of god's creatures I'm like yeah I mean yeah because spiders are good but I wish they would like be outside ideally I like daddy long legs I don't like any other spider daddy long legs just don't look like spiders that's true they're not chunky no they're just little spindly things they're graceful I think 
Yeah, they don't really yeah. do anything. They just chill up in the corner and like eat shit. They just vibe. Yeah, I like daddy long legs. I don't like other spiders. They move no. too fast. They're weird I, when you yeah. squash them. I can't yeah, do it. I don't like the crunchy ones. Nope. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> why do we always do that? Now that we've explored my phobia of spiders, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how we ended up here, to be honest. <laughs> I never do. I don't know what I think about Mother Teresa. I don't know either. Yeah. Um, Because I have heard different things about her as I've gotten older, but not enough to have an opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, Like this definitely helps um, a lot because it gives a much solid, like more solid picture of her from, you know, beginning to end. And I do agree that she is probably being um persecuted for a lot of the stances of just the catholic church mm-hmm. in general rather than like things that she should have been um called out on um but i do you know have opinions on her and um how she views poverty i have opinions on anybody who um is selectively um poor mm. And then yeah. his opinions on poverty right. to um, people who were born in poverty for multiple generations. Yeah, that's so fair. I, I feel like, um, I don't know, you can um, be less afraid about being poor whenever you have chosen to be because mm-hmm. you know that you can always fall back on like a network of people and resources yeah. if anything goes super bad. Whereas like people who are not selectively poor like they're constantly afraid because there is never going to be that safety net for them. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh-huh. but it's nice that, you know, she helped the poor. She did what she could. She gave it shit. Um, honestly, wish she would have spent some of that money though. Reminds me of too many of my family members. They're like, well, just put it back for like an emergency or whatever, and then never spend it. And it's like, then why did we put it back? Yep. hundred percent. Use it. Hunt. 100% honey pee could she could have like I don't know painted a wall them. <laughs> she could have gotten the nun's shoes <laughs> instead of stilettos <laughs> instead of that one pair of uh, <laughs> whorish stilettos they're big can we please just have even one pair of crappy shoes to share amongst to us share. she's like no <laughs> it would break the bank <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah I don't know I don't I don't really understand the whole thing I I totally understand not wanting to spend any money on the nuns when there are poor mm-hmm. people suffering 100% get that but why why didn't she spend any of it on medical training for them mm-hmm. especially when there were so many of them that they could have rotated like how can you save it for an emergency when everything is terrible like it, what is this the, is the, the emergency, emergency. <laughs> <Lady>. exactly agnes <laughs> somebody comes in like their leg missing maggots everywhere and they're like mm, and then, mm. someone worse could walk in the door tomorrow so i i think we right. should save that money um give yeah. him a cold bath <laughs> yeah just dunk him um have the leopard dunk him <laughs> ask him if he wants to meet his maker i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know 
Um, and they would be like, uh, <laughs> something I thought was funny was the the one guy, the guy who made um, Hell's Angel would be like, oh, and Mother Teresa's off flying around in these private jets. <laughs> it's like, I mean, she w- she had an audience with the Pope. <laughs> like she's got to roll up <laughs> on a wagon with a single donkey <laughs> it's right. been four and a half months but I'm here like it is the 20th century like she's allowed <laughs> to fly by plane I think right <laughs> <laughs> acting like she was living in like the lap of luxury I just don't I don't buy it and he'd be like and did you know that Pope John Paul II did not advocate for contraception. <laughs> it's like, yeah, he's Pope. He's the Pope. <laughs> he's not going to do gonna go that. out on a limb and say that's probably not going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. No, I mean, not even Pope Francis. Yeah, although po- I think Pope Francis is probably our most liberal Pope so mm-hmm. far, um, and hopefully it keeps like trending in that direction. In my personal opinion, I think we need a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, even he is firmly anti-contraception go out and make babies make more members of the church be fruitful and multiply that is their main source of recruits (laughs) infants (laughs) who have no choice good times Mm -hmm. great times i don't know how i feel about this episode i feel weird about it I always feel weird about the ones that are like purely informative and we don't spend a lot of time like goofing around. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't feel like I did my job, (laughs) even though I probably did my job the way I was supposed to. You did great. Just stick into the facts. And I'm like, that that was horrible. Never again. No, you did great. You did perfect. (laughs) But it's like uh, you were in the like 1900s too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were at the same time period. Yeah, so it was kind of interesting to see like two wildly different sides. Yeah, your dude was going around interviewing people about their past lives. Mother Teresa was digging digging maggots out of wounds. What did you say? Hoarding shoes. Hoarding shoes. They did have enough. She just, it's a liar. (laughs) They were in the bank. (laughs) Found a shoes in the bank. No, but I mean, it's just, it's interesting to see that, like, all of these things are happening simultaneously, you know, all of um, the poverty and the warring and the the violence, yeah, between, like, religions and stuff. And at the same time, you have, like, little girls who are singing songs in different languages and this weird man from Canada who's just like, I need to go (laughs) write it down. Yeah, I think it's good to remember that, like, when horrible things are happening, like in history like oh um oh this horrific like this horrifically violent event happened also normal things are happening too people are living their lives are pretending to be part of a different cast so they can get better food (laughs) yeah being snobby to their families (laughs) yeah people are getting married all over the place yeah someone had someone got married on 9-11 you know Mm -hmm. Somebody had multiple people had babies on 9-11. Yeah. It's crazy to think about. Yeah. All the different things that are happening. I mean, you got uh, married in the middle of the pandemic. So I sure did. It's very weird to think that like some people are 
I, I know of uh, you and at least two other people who got married during the pandemic mm-hmm. who I'm friends with. Um, weird to see that. And then people also dying. And it's like, yeah, life is, you just got to do life at some point. Life right. Goes on. Right. And I mean, we did make a lot of changes and postpone a little bit, but eventually we were just like, yeah, let's just have a very small group and hope for the best. And it went great. It was not a super spreader event. (laughs) Our grandparents did not die. Um, So yeah, it's like life goes on. You got a niece during the pandemic? Yep. I have a niece, little baby. Did she, she was get baptized? Yes, she was baptized on, on Easter. Easter. That's right. yeah. Trying she to remember. It was an important day. She did great. She didn't cry at all. It's yeah, really good for her getting splashed with some water, mm-hmm. and she took it like a champ. Splish splash. <laughs> she was taking a bath. <laughs> it was cute. I was trying not to cry the whole time. Because <laughs> when you do the baptism, you also do the litany of the saints, and it's like. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray <laughs> for us. And I just, I'm like back in medieval times, which is where I would have thrived. Thriven? Thriven. Throve. I just Throve. make up con- uh, conjugations. I would have thrived. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thrumped. <laughs> thrumped. Oh my God. Yep, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God, it's gonna put me out of my misery. Um, Mother Teresa will <laughs> shoot me like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was fun. That was a good time. It was a good. It was a time. It was uh, a time. <laughs> I don't know if it was good. Let's be real. <laughs> Made my tummy hurt a little to talk shit about Mother Teresa. I don't know what we're doing next. I'm sure whatever it is, we will thrump. <laughs> <laughs> Are you wanting to do the um? the saint whose uh, relics are making their way around mm-hmm. the, the country? I do want to, um, but I am trying to plan a time for me to go see them. So ideally, I would want to do the episode around then, I think. Okay. But I've got to figure out sense. like travel stuff because um, they're not coming to Illinois. So I think I'll have to go to Wisconsin. Sarah's gonna go see um a dead dead person. <laughs> Famous dead person. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed to go get to see a I get to go see a dead body this summer. I wish you the absolute best in your quest to see a dead old lady. Thanks so much. You're welcome. <laughs> um well thanks so much for listening um we still do not have listeners in hawaii so uh if anybody wants to give a holler out to hawaii and see uh what what they're doing over there that'd be great um and we will see you next time thanks be to god blessed be